Hi everyone, and welcome to the first episode of Econ and Me. I've created the show in an attempt to make economics more accessible, and hopefully provide listeners with a foundation of knowledge to critically analyse the economy. My name is Will Haynes, and I've been involved either as a student or as a teacher in economics for the past 15 years. My ambitious plan is to try and democratise the subject, as I think that everyone should have a basic understanding of how an economy functions, and I do believe that economics has become one of the most influential disciplines for modern society. I recently ran an introductory economics course to an incredibly receptive and generous group of adults in South East London, and had planned to expand this further, but for lockdown to put an end to my enthusiasm. But do not panic, I, along with the rest of the quarantine community, am turning to the world of podcasting to challenge the common misconceptions of economics and prove to you that the subject is not as complex as outsiders believe it to be. I wanted to focus the first episode on one of the most fundamental questions. How do we measure economic progress? In discussing this topic, we will look at the history of quantifying economic activity, consider some of the limitations of using our current method of gross domestic product, known as GDP, and highlight some of the alternative ways of calculating growth in the economy. How was gross domestic product developed? Back in the 16th century, a doctor, innovator and economist called William Petty developed the first set of national accounts for Britain. Reoccurring wars against the Netherlands pushed up tax rates in order for the government to fund military spending. Petty believed the current system acted as too much of a burden on those who owned assets, land or house ownership, and not enough on wages, those who worked. By making the assumption that income equals expenditure, he calculated the minimum income required by individuals to buy basic necessities and multiplied this by the population to give total expenditure across the economy. And unbeknown to him at the time, the initial idea behind an indicator that now drives our economic system. Attempts to measure the economic health of a nation were not revisited until the Great Depression of 1929. The American Congress asked economist Simon Kuznets to estimate the economic devastation caused by the stock market crash. Whilst politicians knew that the Western world was suffering during this period, they had no idea of quantifying this and thus knowing the depth of the crisis and whether they were making progress towards a recovery. Working alongside his contemporary Colin Clark from the UK, Kuznets created a method for calculating national income. He is credited as the inventor of GDP, but he cautioned against this concept as a measure of economic well-being. In 1934, he said that the welfare of a nation can scarcely be inferred from a measurement of national income. John Maynard Keynes refined this measurement slightly during the Second World War to establish the modern day method of calculating GDP. In simple terms, gross domestic product is the total value of goods and services produced in an economy. To complicate things further, there are three different methods. Output method, which looks at production. The income method, which looks at earnings from that production. And finally, the expenditure method, which looks at spending on that production. All three methods should give the same figure, although most economies focus on the output method. Keynes proposed that total expenditure consists of spending by households and individuals, spending by firms spending by the government and spending by foreign countries on domestic goods, also known as exports. Add these all together in a given year and you have annual GDP figure. 
the most widely used thermometer of the health of an economy. When the economy does well, the GDP figure will rise. In other words, average incomes across the households will increase. And when the economy performs poorly, the GDP figure will fall. Average incomes go down. GDP per capita then divides the total output of an economy by the population. This is important to take into account when we look at the two largest economies in the world, the US and China. Economists predict that China will overtake the US over the next decade to become the largest economy in the world in terms of total GDP. But once we take into account the size of the respective populations, Chinese output is less than a fifth of the US on a per person basis. In simple terms, China has a large output due to the size of its population, but the average citizen has an income of only $10,000 a year, a figure below the world average and on a par with economies like the Maldives or Mexico. There are other variables that we also need to consider in measuring GDP, such as inflation. Is the value of your goods and services that you're producing going up because you're making a higher quantity or because general prices across the economy are rising? And purchasing power. How far does your income go within your economy? $10,000 a year in China will go much further than $10,000 a year in the US. But I don't want to frazzle your brain too much with too many statistics. So what are the limitations of GDP as a measure of economic progress? Firstly, we need to understand that GDP is an abstract concept. It was developed by us and has become the most important economic statistic. Nearly all economists will agree that we need a method of measuring economic activity. And GDP offers an arguably simple measure of holding individual governments to account and can be used for cross-country comparisons in economic performance. But what is so gross about gross domestic product? Firstly, GDP was developed at a time when we had an economy dominated by goods rather than services, what we call tangible versus intangible. It is easy to measure the value of computers or cars produced, but GDP will not take into account improvements in the quality of a service or productivity gains. If a consultant, a personal trainer or a restaurant improve the service that they offer, then GDP will not be able to register this and thus the data will conclude that standards of living have remained constant. Free online platforms such as Wikipedia are worth nothing according to GDP despite improving our knowledge of the world. And the same can be said of apps which can save us both money and time. GDP was fine in the age of manufacturing, but now with over three quarters of UK output coming from services, it does not accurately represent our quality of life. Secondly, GDP is an average, therefore does not take into account the distribution of growth across the economy. Whilst a rise in GDP may signal a rise in average incomes, this may mean that a proportion of the population are seen either stagnating or deteriorating standards of living. Following the global financial crisis of 2008, the top 1% of income earners in the US captured 50% of the growth in GDP, meaning the other 50% was distributed across the bottom 99% of income earners. From the outside, growth figures may show an economy performing well. But when you unpick the data, this growth may not be inclusive and only benefits a select few in society. GDP does act to conceal the increasing levels of income inequality that we are experiencing in the developed world. Thirdly, 
As we increase GDP, we destroy the natural world. The exponential rise in economic growth over the last century has led to widespread environmental damage through the burning of fossil fuels and greater consumerism. In fact, projects to clean up polluted water resources or rebuild communities after climate disasters actually contribute to GDP, and thus the figure encourages us um, to be more unsustainable. Our continual pursuit of growth will negatively impact the welfare of the next generation, but GDP in its current form has no way of articulating this. Fourthly, only paid work is included in GDP figures, and this means that voluntary work is excluded. But is it fair to conclude that the efforts of a house parent in undertaking daily chores and bringing up their children is not contributing to economic progress? or the dedicated unpaid work of those in the charity sector or caring for loved ones. Back in 2014, Bank of England Chief Economist Andy Haldane outlined in a public lecture that the voluntary sector contributes more to the economy than agriculture and telecoms, 1.5% of all economic output. But as no monetary transaction takes place, GDP figures cannot capture voluntary work, despite their benefits to our well-being. On this topic, we also need to recognise the trade-off between leisure and work. A high GDP or high average incomes may be a result of long working hours and employee burnout, which puts a strain on our mental health, families, friends and overall quality of life. Finally, GDP estimates fail to paint a clear picture of the nature and causes of growth. Is this growth artificial or more natural? Are firms producing more goods and services because households are better off in terms of their incomes or are they simply living a lifestyle well beyond their means by accumulating debts? As the expenditure method is one of the three ways of calculating GDP, economies can act to inflate their GDP figures by households, firms and governments all spending more than their income. This model is unsustainable, as there will become a point in which these debts will need to be repaid, at the expense of future generations. GDP does not take debt at either the household, firm and governmental level into account, and thus an obsession with GDP can lead to an obsession with debt. Before we move on to alternative measures to GDP, I wanted to read out a speech from Robert Kennedy, a modern liberalist, just before his assassination in 1968. Too much and for too long, we seem to have surrendered personal excellence and community values in the mere accumulation of material things. Our gross national product now is over $800 billion a year, but that gross national product, if we judge the United States of America by that, that gross national product counts air pollution and cigarette advertising and ambulances to clear out our highways of carnage. It counts special locks for our doors and the jails for the people who break them. It counts the destruction of the redwood and the loss of our natural wonder in chaotic sprawl. It counts napalm, it counts nuclear warheads and armoured cars for the police to fight the riots in our cities. It counts Whitman's rifle and Speck's knife and the television programmes which glorify violence in order to sell toys to our children. 
Yet the gross national product does not allow for the health of our children, the quality of their education or the joy of their play. It does not include the beauty of our poetry or the strength of our marriages, the intelligence of our public debate or the integrity of our public officials. It measures neither our wit nor our courage, neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. And it can tell us everything about America, except why we are so proud that we are Americans. If this is true here at home, so it is true elsewhere in the world. There is a growing urgency to come up with a substitute to gross domestic product, but how much progress has the discipline made in this area? In 1990, the United Nations wished to shift the focus of economic development away from growth alone and towards other aspects of prosperity. Keeping this measure simple was key to convincing academics and politicians of the importance of broadening our definition of progress. The Human Development Index, HDI, looks at three dimensions of human development. Health in terms of life expectancy, education in terms of mean years of schooling and income in terms of gross national income, which is a slight variation to GDP. Each dimension is given an equal weighting and countries are given a score from naught to one. Norway currently tops the global rankings with the UK sitting in 15th place. More recently, the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, known as the OECD countries, a group of the most developed economies in the world, produced the Better Life Index. This is a dashboard measure, meaning that it looks at a range of factors that influence our well-being. There are 11 dimensions to this measure, including work-life balance, safety, sense of community and the quality of the environment. Norway tops the league again using this measurement with strong performances in life satisfaction, the environment and safety, whilst the UK languishes down in 14th place due to high levels of income inequality, poor work-life balance and high housing costs relative to incomes. Kate Raworth has added fresh impetus into the Beyond GDP movement by developing a new paradigm, the donut. She doesn't offer an alternative way of measuring the economic health of a nation, but attempts to rethink the whole debate surrounding growth. Rather than positioning economic growth at the centre of economics, we should work within the boundary of our ecological ceiling by protecting our environment, whilst maximising a social foundation, our access to food, housing, water and other basic needs. This means that we are essentially reversing the current hierarchy of the economy being at the top of the ladder, society second and the environment last, to build a system in which the environment becomes our top priority, trying to build a society within this and finally creating an economy that aims to meet societal goals as opposed to just growth alone. Rayworth's best-selling book Donut Economics has made the single biggest contribution to this discussion in recent years and has opened up a viable model whereby the economy can act to complement the environment rather than degrade it. Building on this momentum, fellow female economist Diane Coyle argues that we should measure the wealth of a nation rather than its income. In economics, wealth is what we call a stock variable measured at a given point in time, whereby income is a flow variable measured over a period of time. Given that GDP figures are usually released every quarter or on an annual basis, is it accurate to say that our standards of living are determined by events in that period rather than the assets of a nation that have accumulated over time? 
Coil has built a balance sheet for a country based on several kinds of assets. Financial assets, with debt subtracted from any gains, physical assets, roads, communication networks, broadband, railways, natural assets, national parks, clean air, green space, human assets, knowledge, skills and well-being, intangible assets, intellectual property, copyrights and patents, and social and institutional assets, good governments, democracy, state-funded services and community. Is it really our income over the last three months that determines our economic welfare or all of these assets that we can enjoy as members of a society? The national balance sheet split places sustainability at its core, shifting away from short-term objectives and ensuring that we give a voice to future generations. How is the UK economy performing in terms of GDP? A timely podcast given the recent release of GDP figures by the Office for National Statistics. Data from the first quarter of 2020, January to March, show that the economy shrank by 2%. Relating this to the definition of GDP at the start of this episode, economic production is therefore 2% lower than it was in the last quarter of 2019. Given that this first quarter figure only takes into account one full week of lockdown, economists expect much bleaker numbers for the second quarter, April to June. In terms of growth, the UK economy has been below its trend since the global financial crisis of 2008. With any momentum in a recovery halted by another shock, such as Brexit in 2016 and this current pandemic. The Bank of England report released on the 8th of May warned that the UK economy will face its sharpest downturn since 1706, with a 14% contraction in growth predicted for 2020, to then rebound in 2021. Whether the coronavirus pandemic will cause a short V-shaped downturn or a more prolonged economic depression will depend entirely on our ability to control the outbreak, not just nationally, but internationally. Discovering a vaccine is the cure to the economy. I wanted to finish the show by sharing my own thoughts on the question. How should we measure economic progress? This crisis has given us the perfect opportunity to force change, and I believe that GDP has passed its sell-by date. If we wish to develop an alternative indicator of economic progress, we first need to clearly define what we mean by it. Is it just about monetary gains, or should it capture broader aspects of life? For a measure to gain political acceptance, either domestically or globally, it needs to be simple, for data collection purposes, but also for the people to understand it. I would propose a dashboard approach to cover what I believe matters in life, income, health, education and sustainability, taking into account distribution rather than an average. It is by no means a perfect measure, but hopefully a measure that provides a smooth transition for governments away from GDP. By shifting to a broader and more inclusive measure of economic progress, we have the power to shift our whole focus as a society and the way in which we live our lives. As listeners, have a think about your measurement of economic progress and what you would focus on. If you have any thoughts on this topic, and would like to ask any questions, then please email me. The address is econandme at hotmail.com. All one word, that's econandme at hotmail.com. 
Thank you for listening, everyone. Stay safe and well, and I look forward to producing the next show.